What you actually find is that there's a lot of people in jail that believe that they are innocent. And it might actually be the case. This is Not What You Think. I'm Zasha Rosen. If you're a fan of serial, Law and Order, Making a Murderer, you've probably spent a bit of time thinking about what it would be like to be in prison. Or even, what would it be like if you were in prison and you were innocent? What if you were in prison for years because someone remembered you doing something that you never did? Or even something that you'd confessed to, something that you'd never done? Dr. Celine von Holder is the director of the Sydney Exoneration Project, which examines old convictions to look for wrongful imprisonment. She thinks you'd be surprised what people will believe about the past. Celine, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. How does memory work? That's a very complicated question. Unlike popular belief, memory doesn't work like a video recorder. So we often think that when you try to remember something, you just open up either like a bookcase or you take a video and you replay it in your mind. However, memory is actually a reconstructive process. When you try to remember something, the how you feel at that time, where you are at that time will actually influence what you remember. Is this something that, that happens easily, that memories become corrupted this way? It is easier than we think. It's not that everybody is just creating false memories all the time, but it goes a lot easier and faster than you might think. And specifically, if you look at a lot of the different factors that influence your memory, it's very easy just by the way that you feel to reconstruct a memory towards the way that you feel at this point. So if you think, if you're very sad and you think about a birthday party that happened 10 years ago, the sadness that you feel at this point might actually taint your memory of that birthday party and you remember it in a more negative light. So it goes easier than we think. So this is why when you're sad, the world just seems appalling because everything you remember is coloured by the feeling you have right then. Yes, but it also means that you can make yourself very happy and appear to be very like amazing by having a very good mood when remembering stuff. What is the original memory then? If it's reconstructed, what is it that you remember? What have we got hidden in there somewhere? Of course, there's going to be specific facts. And within forensic psychology, when we do research, they call like central aspects of a memory. And those are often quite correct. They're quite right. And they're very difficult to change. But then everything that happens around it can be reconstructed. And don't say that it happens all the time and that all the memories that we have are false. But it is more those peripheral details or the peripheral aspects of your memory that might be distorted towards how a question is asked about the memory, how you feel about the memory, or even how long ago it was. I think this is called the misinformation effect. Um, Kind of. It is closely related to it. So the misinformation effect is when we receive information about the event that we try to remember after it has taken place, and this information is incorrect. So I might be asking you about what you had for breakfast this morning. And within my question, I might put in a suggestion that you were eating eggs. However, you knew that or you know that you were eating yogurt this morning. However, if I keep on suggesting in my questions that you might have had eggs, you can change your memory and you might actually come to remember that you've had eggs instead of yogurts. So that's the misinformation effect. Somebody suggests something or provides you with specific information after you've experienced something and you incorporate that information into your memory. It becomes very important within the criminal justice system because if we look at where police go with their investigation, the first thing they do is they talk to witnesses and they ask them about what they saw. Or you go within a court case and witnesses have to give their statement and the jury decides based on witness statements if a person is guilty or not. The legal system heavily relies on eyewitness memory and eyewitnesses are very convincing in court. And research, for example, shows that juries are more likely to convict after they've heard a statement from an eyewitness independent of any other evidence that has been provided during the court case. 
And witnesses have to rely on their memories. And it is the way that, for example, police officers ask you questions or the lawyer asks you questions or maybe your friends in between ask you questions about what you witness that can actually influence what you report. However, if we would re-establish the legal system, like now all of a sudden we never had a legal system and we now have to introduce a legal system, eyewitness evidence would actually not be regarded as highly as it is. So there's this famous case from the Innocence Project in the United States. These are horrible criminal cases, so I'm going to talk a little bit about not-so-nice crimes. A woman was sexually and physically assaulted by a man, and afterwards she gave a description of the man, but the police didn't have a clue. They didn't know who he was, or they didn't know where to start searching. So they provided her with mugshots, and those are just pictures that they take of people that are arrested, and they said, like, well, maybe there's someone that you recognize based on the description. And she looked at the pictures, and I'm just going to give this person that was wrongly convicted now the name Marcus, and Marcus was within those pictures. And she said, nah, the person that attacked me is not within these pictures. Afterwards, they actually arrested a few people, and Marcus was one of the people that they put in the lineup where they put her in front of it. He wasn't arrested, he was just one of the extra people in the lineup. Yes, he was just one of the falls, one of the additional people that they put in there. And then again, she didn't choose him. She said like, oh, that is one person that looks a lot like him, but it is not him. And then when there was a third time that she looked at the lineup again and police providing her with a lot of suggestions, all of a sudden she identified this person, Marcus, as the person that had assaulted her. And he went to jail for, I think, 22 years, a very long time. And this is how she came to believe by suggestion and by seeing this person after it actually had happened multiple times. And because she was in the same context, so within that whole police investigation, started to associate him with what had happened to her. So her whole memory about the person that attacked her changed. That is the problem with eyewitness memory and eyewitness identification evidence. You can easily make mistakes and People, unlike popular belief, are actually really bad at identifying people that they don't know that well. There's a study about visits to Disneyland where people ended up not quite remembering a visit that they had. Yes. So what they actually did with that is that they asked adults about an experience in their childhoods and then they provided them with a little advertisement and they said, like, look, this is the advertisement to Disneyland and they put a picture of Bugs Bunny on that advertisement. And then they asked them, how do you remember in multiple interviews when you were in Disneyland and you actually met Bugs Bunny over there? About a quarter of the people actually came to remember that. And they started reporting like a lot of details, how they shook his hand and were allowed to like hold his carrot or touch his tail. And then afterwards, it was actually very clear that that could never have happened because Bugs Bunny is not a Disney character. So he would never have been there. But people actually generally believed that they experienced that. Starting to remember that you met Bugs Bunny in Disneyland is, of course, one thing. But then that's completely different than actually starting to remember that somebody committed a horrible crime and maybe even against you. But what we see from actually real-life cases is that that can happen as well. So that same memory process where you create a false memory becomes true in very horrible cases. How does police suggestion work generally? Like, is it just when they've got the people in lineup? Where does it happen? Well, police suggestion specifically within Australia, there's very strict rules in how police should conduct lineups and how they should interview them. But we see in a lot of other countries, specifically in the United States, that those guidelines and those rules are a little bit less strict and mistakes happen. It can go very easily. It can be by, and often it's not even intentionally. It's not that the police definitely want you to identify or remember a specific thing. 
but they just want to solve the case. So they might have an idea themselves and put a suggestion about that idea in a question. And once that question is asked, you start to think about it, and maybe not even on a conscious level, but start then incorporating that suggestion into your own memory. How do you design a police interrogation to avoid that? Well, they have, as I said, very strict guidelines at the moment. So instead of asking, for example, close-ended questions or yes or no questions, they now have to ask open-ended questions. They cannot put any suggestions in there. And only at the very end, they can follow up or provide you with prompts about specific aspects that they want to know about. They've also have really good guidelines now on how to conduct a lineup. So how the people are introduced, the types of things that they say, that they say the person may or may not be in this lineup. And they always have to call the suspects and never say the criminal. So there's very strict guidelines and they're actually developed by forensic psychologists. A closed question would be something like this where I ask you, is this a closed question? Yes. Or you can say, was the car blue or red? And within that question, you suggest that it has to be one of the two colors. What if that's all white car? I only have two options now, and I might actually choose one of them because I think, well, the police officer might know something about that that I don't know, so it must be one of those colors. As opposed to say, what color was the car? Police can be involved in pushing people in one direction, but other people are able to create confusion as well. What you see in Australia, because police has been very well instructed, and again, they don't do all the terrible things that you see that often happens within the United States. They're very well structured. But what we see is that actually your co-witnesses, other people that witness it, or people that have heard about it, or even media reports can influence your memory, can be a very big part in changing your memory. One of the big problems that really leads into this is that a lot of police, especially in the States with a particular training method, think that they're human lie detectors. Are they any good at spotting liars? Unfortunately, they're not. What we found from research is that people are very bad at detecting lies. We're actually really good liars and really bad lie detectors. We're about as good as just flipping a coin because either someone is lying or not, so you always have a 50% chance. And we're about at the same rate. But you're right, so within the United States, they are allowed to use a lot of techniques when interviewing a suspect that are not allowed in Australia. The presumption when they start an interview is often that a suspect is guilty. And they base that on the fact they do like this little preliminary interview with the suspect. And based on the answers that the suspect gives, they can determine if this person is lying about their involvement in the crime or not. This is based on wrong assumptions that they are actually good at detecting lies. So they go in with this mindset that they can determine if this person is lying and then they have to get this person to confess. And then all the other techniques that they use afterwards are just focusing on getting this person to confess. One of the side effects of this is that in a lot of cases, people who are innocent actually confess to things they didn't do in the interview. Yes, and that is very difficult to understand for us, but people can quite easily, just like creating false memories, can easily confess to something they didn't do and even quite horrific things. Getting back to making a murderer, what you introduced at the start, so not Stephen Avery, but his nephew, what we saw there is he was interviewed and they were using all these techniques and he was also mentally not as up there as others and that had a really big influence on him and I actually believe that he became, like he came to falsely confess to something he didn't do. And what you see with this type of a technique, it's not that you have to be intellectual, like less able. What we've done with research is we had university students come to confess to specific acts that would actually have a negative impact on them. So they would get less money at the end of the experiment or they were not allowed to sit an exam. And 
they confess to specific things that they didn't do. Why would you do that? It can be pressure from the person interviewing you. It can be the negative consequences, being held there. If people like question you in a very aggressive way for hours on end, you just want to escape the situation. But you also can come to believe that you actually did something while you didn't do it. And that's related again to false memories. You've given a confession. Yep. Confession probably isn't true. What happens to you next in the justice system? Well, if you look at the United States, over there, confession evidence is very compelling. And as soon as you confess, they can actually speed up your trial and you can go to jail quite quickly. Over here, confession evidence is less influential. Like they need to provide a lot more evidence to actually get you confessed. What we see with false confessions, when people don't start to believe they actually done it, but they just want to escape from the situation and think, if I confess now, at least I can leave this room they retract their confession straight away afterwards. And within Australia, that's a very good thing. People that actually start to internalize their false confession, so they come to believe what they've done, they might actually end up in jail while they're innocent and believe that they've committed a crime. How did we find out that they're innocent? It could be a variety of reasons. We can find the actual perpetrator if people are still interested in trying to find out who did it. DNA evidence might show that they are not guilty. So they find DNA evidence on either the victim or the scene of the crime, and it doesn't match up with the person that is in jail. But usually with other evidence or with projects like the Sydney Exoneration Project, what I want to emphasize is that it can happen very easily. And what we've shown with research is that even if I would be here for a while with you or with somebody else, I can make you confess to specific things that you might not have done if I have the right setting and the right techniques. Oh, really? We have my producer, Lachlan, sitting right next to you. Could we get you to try to make him confess um, to something? I think it might be a little bit ethically um, <laughs> questionable. <laughs> if you pretend you were just kind of lightly doing it, explain the steps you would use um, rather than actually doing it to him. Okay. So first of all, I would have the setting right. I would put him in a little room where he doesn't have any control about lights, about air conditioning. He feels isolated. He feels out of control. Then, of course, I'm going to make sure that we intimidate him a little bit. So you try to be physically like close to him, but also over him. So he feels physically intimidated. Then I would start off with just questions ask him to describe his idea of what has happened, and then I will try to find little aspects that are not quite correct. But within the very controversial technique that's used in the United States, I could also lie about evidence. So I could say that we find his fingerprints or his DNA at the scene of the crime or on the victim. And then I would read, I would wait what his response is. And based on that response, I determine if he's lying or not. And he's always lying because I determined that already beforehand. And then I would start intimidating him with different type of techniques. I would start threatening him personally, maybe his family, that if he doesn't confess, horrible things will happen to his family. If he doesn't confess, he'll go to jail forever. Maybe even get the death penalty in specific states in the United States. Lachlan, do you think you might confess under those circumstances? Would you be tempted? I'm not a huge fan of my family being threatened <laughs> and being physically assaulted and evidence being held against me. So... <laughs> I, I think I might. Celine, you helped set up and you direct the Sydney Exoneration Project. And that's a project where you try to find people who might be in circumstances like that, where they've given a false confession or maybe a witness incorrectly identified them, something that has led them to end up in prison for something that they may not have committed. 
We started up last November and we have actually turned it into a course at the university from the start of this semester. So initially it was just volunteers working on the project and now we actually have students who get course credit for it. And hopefully we'll keep on going for quite a while. How do you start piecing together an exoneration like that? It's quite interesting. What you actually find is that there's a lot of people in jail that believe that they are innocent. And it might actually be the case. So the initial one, the initial case that we started off with, was a person who contacted us and who had seen a couple of documentaries on false memory research. And he said, that's exactly what happened in my case. And we initially look at the case, we look at the application, we've got quite an extensive application questionnaire that people have to fill in, and they have to justify why they believe that they are innocent. And based on that evidence, we'll go through all the files, all the police records, trial files, any evidence that is available to see if there are maybe suggestions that somebody falsely confessed. So if you see or watch the interviews, or if you listen back to the interviews, you read them, you might find evidence that a person falsely confessed to something or maybe even within questioning that there might have been suggestions or records that they were talking to other witnesses and they might have influenced each other. Where do you go from there? What happens next? Within the project, we've got law students and psychology students working together because we can learn a lot from each other. And the students are actually encouraged to work cross-field because we do not have a barrister within our project we're not allowed to give any legal advice. After our evaluation of all the case files, we write it up in a report and we provide that to the person in jail or to their legal representative, and they can take that and take it further from there. Having worked with memory for so long, your entire university career has been founded around memory? Yes. Why do you think memory works this way? I wish I knew. (laughs) It's a mechanism to enable us to function in a very chaotic world. And to make sense of herself. That's my best explanation. Celine, thank you for coming in today. You're welcome. You can look up the Sydney Exoneration Project online. We'll include a link to it on our show page and in our podcast notes. If you like this episode and you want to hear more, we've got lots more. Go to fbiradio.com slash notwhatyouthink to hear all of this season's episodes and three seasons worth of archived episodes. You can also subscribe to our podcast there and get the next episode as soon as we put it up online. Is there something you think we should make a show about? There's a link on that page for you to tell us all about it. If you like us, you'll probably like a bunch of other great FBI podcasts. Choose some at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. Know What You Think is produced by Olivia Perry-Griffiths and Lachlan Wiley. Linda DeLacy is production consultant. Show art by Annie Hamilton. And executive production is by Samira. It was created by Laura Briley, Claire Holland, and me. I'm Sasha Rosen. And just for the record, since we originally recorded this episode, Stephen Avery's cousin, Brendan Dassey's conviction, has actually been overturned. The judge is said to have had significant doubts about the reliability of Dassey's confession. Next week, the XX.